The title of the message this morning is The Gain of Self-Discipline, and the text is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Please read along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, which says this, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to a challenging passage this morning, a passage that deals with discipline and running in a way that pleases you. May this be challenging to our hearts in a way that we not only feel the impact of the words, but we respond to them with actions, that we may be doers of the word and not hearers only. Teach us, we pray. Teach us more about yourself and how we shall live. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but the last time we were together in 1 Corinthians, we were looking at the issue of Christian freedom. So I wanted to begin this morning by asking you, what freedoms do we have as Christians? What liberties do we have? One way you could ask this question is, uh, if you meet someone who's not a Christian and they see you doing something and they say, you can do that and be a Christian? That you might say, oh yes, I have the freedom to do blank. What, What would you say? What is your freedom? Sorry, hang on just a sec. <laughs> I have asked for forgiveness and eat vegan. Hang on just a sec. We'll start with forgiveness. Um, is that what you said? So you have the forgive. Oh, eat bacon. I- I'm sorry. I completely misheard you. Um, so um, <laughs> forgive me. Um, so I think when you say ask for forgiveness... I think um, uh, people might think that Christians don't ask for forgiveness because we think we're perfect. Is that what you're getting at? Or what, how do we have freedom? Why would people be surprised that Christians would ask for forgiveness, is, I guess? Well, I don't know. It's, um, you don't, I don't, like more, it's more like, well, yeah, basically. Yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot too much. But, but uh, it's, it's true. Sometimes people might be surprised that we would sin. We don't have the freedom to sin. But we have an obligation to repent and to ask for forgiveness if we do sin against someone else. And people may be surprised at that. Um, when we talk about liberty, um, we're talking about, okay, so I can eat pork, right? And, but, I mean, really, are people surprised at that? Um, I, I, okay, I'll... I'll, I'll Maybe they'd be surprised if you killed the pork before you ate it. If you, you, you know, if you hunted it down a wild pig and had it mounted and put it on your wall, they might be surprised in that. I had a, I went hunting one time. I had a mount made uh, and uh, put it uh, in the room. This is back when I was single, and we had a big, great room with high ceilings, twelve foot ceilings. I put this. It was an impala. I put it up there on the uh, wall. And uh, my roommate had a Bible study. He was hosting a college Bible study, young adults. And a lady came, a young lady who was vegan. And she said it stared at her the whole time. <laughs> the head was just tilted, and she had been sitting. Uh, and so, I mean, I would say, uh, Bible says, go ahead, kill, and eat. Right? I ate, uh, not the whole impala, but a good portion of it. And it was all eaten. And so I think there's freedom in that. You may say, well, you know, but uh, uh, that would be, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. What else do we have freedom to do as Christians? Yoga. Yoga. 
All right. Well, <laughs> hey, we want to thank you guys for coming from the college group to here. That's, <laughs> um, you may have freedom to do yoga. I suppose uh, how much... Uh, I, so I... I don't know much about it, to tell you the truth. I, I, you know, I suppose if you don't think about it much and you don't wear the clothing, I think you're fine. I mean, you wear different clothing like than, than the yoga pants or whatever. I don't know if they're... Like, I don't have the freedom to wear yoga pants. <laughs> Agreed? Yeah? All right. What other, what other things might you have freedom to do as a Christian that people would be surprised at? Yes. Okay, so people might be surprised at uh, the amount of money that you have or the amount of money you don't have, and they might be surprised you're a Christian. Uh, yeah, so somebody in the health and wealth prosperity, which would be a different gospel, they might say, you're a Christian and you're poor and you're happy, and they, you said, yes, so was the Apostle Paul, right? But uh, when it comes to having money, really we're more concerned about what we do with the Lord's money than how much we have. And so, um, obviously, you can, you can err either way here. You can, you can not use the money properly, uh, and it really doesn't matter how much you have. It's how you're using it, and that may be surprising to some people. Yes, what else? Yes. Yeah. Okay, for the sake of argument, drinking alcoholic beverages. All right? <laughs> not that this would be me... Right? But I suppose there might be a Christian somewhere who might say, I have the liberty to drink NyQuil if I have a cold. (laughs) Right? Some of you would say, no, teetotalers, no NyQuil. But, um, okay, alcoholic. Yes. What else? Yes. With freedom to give up our rights. Yeah, but who would do that? That's what Paul said. That's right. You're, you're 100% right. He says, in fact, let's just go back um, to uh, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. I do want to point out um, the number of times he says the word win here. So you can notice the word win, W-I-N. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. So he says, I've given up. Though I have freedom, I'm using my freedom to become a slave, is what he says. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I counted four times the word win and one time the word save. He's, he's thinking about seeing people come to salvation. And Paul served others with great sacrifice and concern. We saw that in verses 19 all the way through 23. He, he was sacrificial in the way he served because he served the Jews, which meant that when he was with Jews, he did not follow the dietary restrictions. He would not have had pork while he was with Jews. Um, he served the Gentiles in verse 21 which may mean that he would have had to eat strange things and not ask about them, and it would have gone completely contrary to his whole history, to everything that he has, grew up, has grown up with, that he had grown up with, uh, thinking about um, uh, the, his, what felt normal to him. It would feel very awkward, especially at first, eating creepy, crawly things that only Gentiles would eat. He served the weak, verse 22, and if that meant... Avoiding meat sacrificed to idols, he would not eat meat altogether if he had to. If it was going to cause someone else to stumble, if it, if it meant that the spread of gospel would not be as rapid or he wouldn't be able to see it, he would abandon anything. Um, he would sacrifice. He was willing to work without being paid if it meant that people would, would know that he wasn't in it for the money. He would wake up early in the morning and make tents 
be ministering in the church uh, during the afternoon and teaching in the School of Tyrannus in the afternoon, and then in the evening going from house to house ministering to people again. Um, so he was working, preaching. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about what we can have freedom to do. What are some things that we might give up today in order to help us be a better witness for Christ? Practically speaking, thinking about freedoms, we've got an idea of some of the liberties that we have, but what are some practical liberties that you might be praying about giving up in order to be a better witness for Christ? Yes. Your comfortability, yes. Specifically. Specifically. Yeah, oh, it's okay. So, so that's good, and in general sense, and we could say, well... Somebody walks in the room, I'm sitting in the lazy boy or the easy chair, I give that up, I sit in a... So, so you're, you're serving others. Now you have the freedom to stay in the most comfortable chair in the room, but uh, there are other things. I'm thinking specifically of specific freedoms you might have. For example, alcohol was mentioned. If you're going to minister in Central Africa, you would be really, it would be to your advantage to abstain from all alcohol in Central Africa because the average African in Central Africa does not see a reason to drink alcohol other than getting drunk. If someone's getting, drinking alcohol, they cannot think of a reason, not that they're not capable of, but the typical society norms would tell you that if someone is drinking a beer, they are spending money on that for the purpose of getting drunk. And since the Bible is clear that drunkenness is sin, they would not associate that behavior with Christianity. And therefore, though you might have the freedom to have a beer, depending on your weight and your blood alcohol level and so forth and all that, um, you could give it up. What would be some other freedoms that you might give up? Yes. Yeah, modesty, right? I mean, you might, you might say... Hmm, does this look too short? You know, your wife might say that, you know, or your, or your sister or something like that. And uh, if it's your sister, you say yes. Uh, and uh, if it's your wife, you say yes. You say, uh, but I mean, it, where are you going? Uh, you know, knowing that there will be people uh, and the fact that you're asking it, you might have the freedom to wear it. Uh, in, in, in Malawi, where we served as missionaries, uh, up until the 1990s, it was against the law for women to wear pants, trousers. It was a, a strict dictator who outlawed, so all women had to wear skirts or dresses. That was the law. And even the years, even today, if you go to church and you wear blue jeans as a lady, you are making a statement. Now, do you have the freedom to wear blue jeans? I don't want to make anybody feel totally uncomfortable here, but, um, uh, but uh, in certain societies, you may learn, hey, I'm going to give that up for the witness of Christ to not be a distraction. Um, it may be cultural. It may be because modesty. Um, those are examples. Any others come to mind? Things you might give up? Freedoms? Yes. Oh, listening to secular music. Yeah. Yeah. This is a... This is an interesting one, right? Because, uh, you know, you might be sharing Christ with someone and uh, then they need a ride, they get in your car. I guess it's, it's probably easier nowadays because uh, you don't have, you know, cassette tapes or CD covers all over your car with, you know, uh, Satan's devil worship band or whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever might be the, you know, the band you're listening to. But... You know, you start the car, and this music comes blaring, and they're like, you're a Christian, and you listen to this, right? And it may be something that, that you say, well, I need to reexamine what I'm listening to for the witness of Christ. So when we come to verses 24 through 27, I think it's an important passage to look at for us, because many of us, when we think about Christian liberty, our first reaction, our first thought is, I have the liberty to do that. And the question that Paul is getting at here is, what can I give up that is a liberty 
to be a more effective witness, which is challenging for us because that's not the way we normally think of when we, uh, Christian liberty when we think about liberty. So um, he uses the metaphor of a race. We'll be seeing that. He also uses an athletic metaphor of boxing. But the race metaphor is one that's used throughout Scripture. Galatians 5, 7 says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Hebrews 12.1, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of, a, a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnared us, ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we're looking at the metaphor, an athletic metaphor, one dealing with self-discipline. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, these verses 24 through 27, we're going to find three reasons why Paul was able to be so effective in his witness for Christ. Three reasons why Paul was so effective. And the first one is that his sight was on the prize. His sight was on the prize. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. So Paul here is concerned about victory. And the victory here, what is the prize for Paul? It's not salvation. He's not thinking about running to gain salvation. The metaphor is limited. The illustration is somewhat limited. If it were uh, salvation, then only one Christian would get salvation because he says only one wins the prize. Um, And I don't think that's really his point, one or none. He's just saying that everybody trains and is disciplined in order because they want the prize. But for him, I think winning for him is winning people to Christ. Four times in the preceding verses, he talks about win, 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 win the, win the Gentiles, win the Jews, win the weak, uh, win everyone, save them. Paul believed in God's sovereignty. We know that. Paul knew that those who were called would be saved, yet he wanted to be part of it. And so he didn't want any delay in any salvation. He, wanted, he didn't want any deterrent. He didn't want anybody to say, well... I wasn't sure about Paul, whether he was in it for the money, so get rid of the money. He, anything that could hinder. I wasn't sure about Paul because, you know, dietary restrictions. No, you know, he's not going to uh, let that be a problem for him with Jews or with Gentiles. And some of his writing this, as we've said before, may have been because his, those who were against him were critiquing him about sometimes eating with Gentiles, sometimes eating with Jews. He's saying, I'm not doing those things because I'm inconsistent. I'm doing those things because I'm consistently trying to give up whatever I can for whom I am ministering to. I want to see them come to faith in Christ. And so the Corinthians were concerned about their liberties. They wanted to focus on freedoms they had. They had freedom to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. They had freedom in many other gray areas, so-called. But Paul knew what his freedoms were, and he was eager to identify them so that he could give them up so that they didn't become a hindrance to anybody else. That's the challenge. And to explain this, he uses athletics as an illustration. First of all, with the the, probably the Isthmian Games. The Olympic Games were uh, around at that time, um, but there was a, the second most popular competition happened right there in Corinth in ancient Greece. Corinth, if you look at Greece on a map, Gr- uh, Greece looks like two big grease stains. They're, they're, they've got rocky edges, and they have a narrow strip of land three miles wide that joins them together. And those are the Corinthian Isthmus. And the Isthmian games were games that people from all around came to. They trained for years for them. It was held every other year. So you would train for at least a year. But the, uh, you had to, minimum, you had to train for 10 months for it. And the last month was there in Corinth and had to be under supervision to show that you were actually training seriously for these events. Daily workouts in the gymnasium and the uh, athletic fields. Um, 
And so knowing this would be extremely familiar to the Corinthians, he writes in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And of course, the way he's worded that, the answer would be, yes, we know that. We know all about that, Paul. Why would anyone train for 10 months if they didn't intend to win, yet there's only one winner? And so the race here, as we've said, is and he admonishes them, he, he, he encourages them, he actually uh, exhorts them to run in such a way that you may win. And the, the, the winning here is that, the, that you might serve Christ in a way that is pleasing to him, where it's effective, that you're honoring God in what you're doing and what you're saying so that people come to faith in Christ. That's winning. And if you are doing that... Um, you should run in such a way that you may win, that you may win. That word prize. Um, Paul has already talked about a future reward for the way that you live. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says in verse 12, it says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And so Paul is saying that uh, he is, he's encouraging others to run a race. He's already talked about a future reward. We call this the Bema Seat Judgment because of the word that's used for judgments, different than the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment is a judgment that's only for believers. It's also described in Second Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, verse 10 is where the word bima is used for judgment. It was the type of judgment showing whether a person is worthy of reward or not by their achievements. And so in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he was talking about the fact that Paul you know, and Apollos and Peter, some water, some plant, but God brings the increase what are you doing to help people grow or to witness for Christ? And he speaks about future rewards as a motive to help people um, now live a life that is doing what the Lord would have you do. And so we think about this. This happens for believers. Um, it's different than, a, than the judgment where it's separation of the sheep and the goats. This is one just for rewards. And though some who are believers but who are immature and who are not living the way they should live, they still may go to heaven, but as through the flames, without any reward. This metaphor doesn't make sense here if Paul says, run the race to believers that you may win the prize, if the prize is heaven, um, because all believers already have salvation. We, we, we have been born again, and we have eternal life. And there is no such thing as temporary eternal life. If you have been given eternal life and it gets taken away from you, then it wasn't eternal, was it? And so because we have eternal life, he's not talking about that as the prize. But the prize here is sort of a combination, different commentators, with the prize for witnessing in a way worthy of the gospel or the prize is actually seeing people come to faith in Christ. For Paul, it seems like that was his goal. He wanted to see people come to faith in Christ. His sight was on the prize. That was really the, the first key that we see to this passage, the first example of the way that he um, was so effective. The first reason is because his sight was on the prize. Second reason why his example was so effective, his strategy was purposeful. His strategy was purposeful, verse 25. Verse 25 says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul had a strategy. 
that was going to really motivate him to be self-disciplined, to witness to people as God would have him, as Christ would have him. And his strategy included two important elements here in verse 25. The first one is he remembered the need for self-discipline. And secondly, he remembered the nature of the prize. The need for self-discipline is found in the beginning of verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. This is not hard for us to understand. Winning requires discipline. An athlete follows the training rules of self-discipline, not self-gratification. He disciplines himself in many ways. He runs when he'd rather be resting. He, uh, he sleeps when he knows it's time for him to go to bed. He gets up early, though he doesn't feel like getting up early. He is all about self-denial. He doesn't sit down before a race and eat an ice cream sandwich. He, doesn't, uh, he, he does what he knows would be beneficial. Month after month, he's consumed with a disciplined lifestyle. Paul asks if the Olympic or Isthmian athlete exercised such great self-discipline or self-control then uh, to win a prize, why can't Christians? And to intensify that, he compares what they get with what we get. That's the nature of the prize, the second part of verse 25. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable in ancient times, the, the prize was a laurel wreath. It was a, a, a wreath, a crown made out of vegetation. Uh, most often in, in, for, in Greece, it was a pine wreath made with branches from a pine tree with evergreen leaves on it or twigs or whatever they are. Um, there was a time, I read about this this week, that... Uh, in the first century, it was most often initially a pine wreath. At one stage, they switched to a celery wreath, and then they went back later in the first century to a pine wreath. I don't know the advantages or disadvantages of either, but it's perishable. It didn't last. It didn't last. Why do athletes today really compete? What, what, why does somebody go to the Olympics? Anybody have any ideas why somebody might go to the Olympics? Gold medal. Gold medal comes to mind. All right. So let's think about this because I, I did some math this week. Anybody know how much a gold medal is worth? I'm like, not, like how much it costs to make a gold medal. So we had games this year, so I looked it up. Guess what? The gold medals in Tokyo were not gold. They were gold-plated. They were silver underneath. And the silver content added up to 400 and some odd dollars. The gold-plated, the whole cost of, to make it was $870. $870. Now, just let's do the math with you. Let's say you train for the Olympics for three years. I'm sure most of them train longer. They don't take a year off before, after the old one. But, okay, three years... And let's say you put in a good 20 hours a week. Now, again, I'm, I'm going low, okay? Let's say you take two weeks off, okay, for Christmas and Boxing Day and all those good holidays, all right? So you got 50 weeks times 20 hours per week. That's 1,000 hours a year times three years. You with me? 3,000 hours you've been training for this. $870 divided by 3,000, 29 cents per hour. 29 cents per hour. Woohoo! You think they do it for the prize? Is it the gold medal? Is it the actual value of it, of, of a gold medal which is perishable? It's, it's not as perishable as celery, but there are other motives. A Christian athlete would do it to glorify his Lord, a non Christian athlete would do it for himself. It would be a selfish motive. In ancient Greece, those who were athletes were treated as gods. Those who were really the stellar athletes of those days, they got fame, they got recognition, they got hero status. They were sometimes referred to as immortalized by the fans. However, their immortality didn't really last. 
because eventually they died. Eventually people forgot them. Christians, we, do, we have such a greater reward than any athlete. We run in order to receive, according to 2 Timothy 4, 8, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day. 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. That's why Paul writes, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And what is he saying? He's saying, shouldn't we put more self-discipline and have more self-control in our lives in giving up liberties that we have in order that we might be better witnesses for Christ because they're doing it for something that fades away and is not a good motive and we're doing it for an eternal reward? And you think about this, what we're talking about is really holy living. Paul wrote to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is sanctification. This is the pursuit of holiness. This is working out your salvation. This is what we do once we realize what we've been given for the sake of giving glory to God because we have an imperishable reward in heaven. And if people here on earth are going to be disciplined, why can't we when ours is eternal? Jay Adams wrote on 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, discipline is the secret of godliness. However, the word discipline has disappeared from our minds, our mouths, our pulpits, and our culture. We hardly know what discipline means in modern society, and yet there is no other way to gain godliness. Discipline is the path to godliness. You must learn to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, discipline alone does not bring godliness. But those who are pursuing godliness must be disciplined. John Owen says, no man preaches his sermon well to others if he doth not first preach it to his own heart. Robert Murray McShane, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. You want to be effective in your witness to other people? Pursue holiness. McShane wrote about soldiers, commanders who have shiny swords that after they use them, get blood on them, and they take such great care to remove the stains and to sharpen them again. And then he says, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. I think that this should challenge us because we think of our liberties as something that takes us away from holiness. And Paul writes this to the Corinthians and says, give up your liberties, pursue holiness, be disciplined in things for the kingdom's sake. His sight was on the prize. His strategy was purposeful. And there's a third reason why his witness was so effective. The third reason is his self-discipline was passionate. His self-discipline was passionate. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We're going to see three ways in which it's passionate. It's passionate. His, uh, his passion about self-discipline is evidenced in, his, in its efficiency, in its expense, and in in its effectiveness. Let's take a look, first of all, at the efficiency. He was passionate about the efficiency of his self-discipline. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. So he's talking about, I'm very efficient in my exercise. I don't just run around aimlessly. If I'm going around the track, I don't just say, well, hey, maybe I'll go over closer and say hi to my mom over here. Maybe I'll just wander because I like this. Oh, there's a shady spot over there. He's, He's running with purpose. He's running with direction. He's efficient. He doesn't want to waste any step, not one. 
If he's boxing, he changes his metaphor here, mixes his metaphor up a little bit. If he's boxing, he's not just hitting the air. Every blow is making contact. He's very efficient in the way he runs, in the way he hits, in the way he fights. I'm still blown away that the passion that he has to win people to Christ. If someone were to ask you, what's your goal? How how many of us would say, to win people to Christ? To win people to Christ. We are often self-focused, lazy, concerned about things that are temporary, I think that sometimes we who believe and trust in salvation by faith alone and we who believe in imputed righteousness, that is righteousness that is taken out of Christ's account and placed into our account, and we know doctrinally that there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. We don't earn our salvation We don't believe in a works righteousness, and sometimes we swing the pendulum the opposite direction, and so we're not concerned about good works. Take a look at, a peek at what we're going to look at next week. Verse, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers we're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. It's so easy to get wrapped up in this world. It's so easy to complain. It's so easy to say the world is going downhill. You know what? The world is going to go downhill. All the more reason to give hope to a dying world that desperately needs Christ. Be thankful that he stands out more brilliant than ever before that people see they have no hope around them and you have hope in Christ and you will not be as effective as as witnessing for Christ as you will be if you live a holy life, if your life is so different, so other, so focused than anybody around you, it will be a stronger testimony to what you actually believe. Paul did not waste one punch. Not only was he efficient, but he was passionate about the expense of self-discipline. Take a look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. In other words, he spared no expense. It didn't matter what it cost him. If he had to give up all his rights and become a slave, he was not just working up a sweat. He was in a real battle. The word there to discipline, or actually some translations say buffet, the word actually literally means to give a black eye. He's continuing with the, the metaphor there. But the victim of his blow is not somebody else. The victim is himself. I give myself, I give my body a black eye. I beat it up. Now, this should no way cause us to think that somehow self-beating yourself up, somehow some sort of way of just, uh, oh, I got to beat, some sort of asceticism, some sort of uh, God's pleased when I make myself suffer. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's saying when there's a cost and I'm going to suffer because of it, but the gospel is going to be proclaimed more clearly, and God is going to be glorified more 
There is nothing I hold back. There's no liberty too costly for me to hold on to. I will let it all go for the sake of the gospel. I will spare no expense. Finally, not only was he passionate about the efficiency, not wasting any steps, or about the expense, not worrying about what it cost him, but he was passionate about the effectiveness of his self-discipline. Take a look at verse 27 towards the end. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that, here's our purpose, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's another metaphor from the Isthmian Games. The word he used there for preach is the common word for preach throughout the New Testament, but it also means to announce, to proclaim. And it was there was a person who proclaimed at the games. He gave the rules. He announced the, 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 the athletes competing. He would talk to the crowds. He was the announcer, the preacher. And Paul didn't want to spend his life preaching Christ, but he himself being disqualified. Now, what does it mean being disqualified? Is it possible to be a Christian and be disqualified from the race? People have looked at this again and been confused, but I think if we think about what Paul is saying, the prize is, the prize is glorifying God glorifying God by seeing people come to faith in Christ. So Paul's point is really give it your best. His point is that he was concerned that people, Christians, would be willing to suffer loss of anything so that Christ would be glorified, and being disqualified would be somehow doing something that would cause you not to be an effective witness. That's the disqualification here. The disqualification. Many believers, many of us, we start the Christian life with great devotion, with great fervor. And after a while, we lose that. We break the discipline, we break the training. And before long, we find ourselves disqualified by participating in sin that ruins our testimony. And what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, go back, go back and keep your eye on the prize. His sight was on the prize. His strategy was purposeful. His self-discipline was passionate. Why is it? Just let me ask you this. Why is it that Paul was so much more effective in winning people to Christ than we are? Why is it that we do not have dozens of people coming every week who are hearing about Christ from people in this group? It's because we are not pursuing holiness with the same kind of vigor and commitment and self-denial that Paul did. We have God's word. I, I, I don't, the purpose is not to make you feel bad. Um, the purpose is to motivate us. But let me just open it up for questions, and I'll ask the first question, and then if you have questions about this passage, we can close with that. My first question are, what are some of the things that actually prevent us? What do we do? Is it, is it that we're too intimidated? What are the reasons that we are not as disciplined as Paul? Yes. Fear of man, fear of rejection, fear of persecution. And, and really, uh, it could be fear of being misunderstood, being considered holier than thou. or you know, and, and so 
as a, and, and, and those are good concerns. We don't want, I mean, fear of man is not a good concern, but fear of being misunderstood can be valid because we don't want to be there and be some sort of obnoxious person that hasn't earned the right to choose a topic of conversation. But on the other hand, we don't want to swing the pendulum the other direction and say, well, we're not going to just witness at all. I think busyness, busyness of life, it's amazing how busy we get. And we catch ourselves saying, well, I just don't have the time. And I think part of that is due to a, a lack of real, genuine care for others because we get wrapped up into ourselves. If we think about the eternal impact of sharing Christ with others, and we love them, we will share no matter what it costs. We have uh, seven or eight minutes here. I just want to take some time for questions. Yes? The day of Christ for rewards. So the BBC judgment would be... Yeah, I think, I think that the rewards will be uh, when we're with the Lord after death, yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, I think I think um, the question is when we're around people um, who claim to be Christians and yet there are issues in their lives, I mean, how do we confront them or they, you know, we feel awkward to confront them? The first thing is, again, if we're pursuing holiness with real vigor, it's going to come out naturally. Um, I, I think that it will come out more naturally because there will be a, a greater distance between you and somebody who's running with their feet tied together because they're entangled with sin. And so we need to put off every... Uh, in, 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 and I would... I, I mean, one of the ways that we start these conversations is, is not focusing on the other person. It's so easy to say, hey, I see this in your life. And sometimes we do need to say that. Um, but uh, you can start with put off these encumbrances. I'm trying to do this. You, you, you're a Christian, right? Will you pray for me? Um, and, and, and leading that to, you know, how do you deal with sin? What's going on in your life? Or, you know, I'm challenged. I want to take a few minutes. I'll, I'll close just by going to the book of Acts with you. I want to, I want to point out, just showing you some practical ways that Paul um, would give up rights for the sake of the gospel. Acts chapter 15 is where we'll close at. Acts chapter 15. So the issue in Acts chapter 15 is the Judaizers. Uh, Paul was out with Barnabas. They were preaching to the lost world, to the Mediterranean world. Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. Peter knew that the gospel was for the Gentiles because he had witnessed uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. But somehow at the church in Jerusalem, the Judaizers were teaching that if you needed, wanted to be a Christian, you had to become circumcised first. You had to uh, follow all the Jewish law. In order to be a Christian, you needed to be a Jew first. And that came to a big debate at the Jerusalem Council. And James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, they all meet. And then James speaks up in uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 19. James says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we, are not, we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated from, by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders 
with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So we have the situation where they, they make the right decision. Salvation is at stake here. We are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. We're not saved through works. So you don't get saved by becoming a Jew first and doing certain rituals. And that was what, it's, what was at stake. And Paul was fighting for that. And then they decided, but they, the first thing they tell them is, okay, you're right. It's by faith alone. But don't uh, stay away from fornication. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't, or don't, don't eat strangled meat. Don't, don't drink blood. And for most of us, we're like, okay, yeah, that's good. But, but uh, you know, again, when I was in Malawi, one of the big questions is, you know, is this for us today? Because mice are strangled. When they, they catch them, they strangle them, they cook them, they eat them. If you haven't seen my son's video on YouTube when he was two eating his first mouse, you can Google mouse missionary Malawi. It's a good, just in between the services here, it'll be a fun little thing. But, but mice are a delicacy in Malawi, and they're convicted. Can we do it? Or sometimes they would have a goat and they would cut the, the throat and, and have the blood go into a bucket, let it congeal overnight and eat it like jello the next day. And they were convicted about this because the New Testament says not to do it. First of all, the good news is you have freedom. You have freedom to eat all of those things. They were asking them to give up their liberty because it would be so offensive to Jews. And so Gentiles were asked, fornication was associated with um, with pagan worship. And so the, stay away from anything pagan. Stay away from anything that would, that would cause them to stumble and try to fellowship with the Jews, is what they were saying. You don't have to be circumcised. We accept you. You're saved. We get it. But what's interesting is that Paul thought that was good. And in the very next chapter, Paul, verse 16, chapter 16, it says in verses 1 through 3, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well-spoken by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was Greek. It's, it's, he just won the battle. He has freedom. You don't have to be circumcised. Timothy, I want you to come with me. Let's go get circumcised. Why? Because Paul went to the synagogues first. He preached to the Jew first. He wanted Timothy to come with him. Timothy was considered to be a Gentile because of his father. But if he was circumcised, he could be considered a Jew, a proselyte at worst. And then he could join him in witnessing to more Jews. So he was happy to give it up if it meant more gospel. There's example. There are many more examples I could take you through in, in the book of Acts where we have... Um, you know, Paul doing things that seem very Jewish for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for the challenge from your word. And Lord, we need your help because we don't want to walk away from here without taking seriously the challenge from your word. We thank you for Paul who wrote on your behalf, this is your message for the church, that we should pursue holiness with a goal of seeing your name exalted. Help us, Father, to keep our eye on the prize, to be purposeful and to be passionate about what pleases you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.